Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Alright, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. NATO Special Operations Forces are still in Ukraine. So if you listen to this show, this isn't uh, news for you, but I wanted to make this the top story just because there's uh, all this news and talk about NATO troops being sent to Ukraine. And we had some more confirmation that there are already some NATO special operations forces inside Ukraine. So in the wake of French President Emmanuel Macron's comments about Western countries not ruling out sending troops to Ukraine, a European official speaking to Financial Times pointed out that Western Special Operations Forces are already in the country. So this official, who is described as a senior European defense official, said, quote, Everybody knows there are Western Special Forces in Ukraine. They've just not acknowledged it officially, end quote. And we do know that there are special forces in Ukraine because of the Discord leaks, which revealed last year that as of March 2023, there were 97 NATO special operations soldiers in Ukraine, including 14 Americans and 50 British soldiers. So the British had the biggest presence there. And this leak confirmed earlier reporting from The Intercept that said U.S. special operations forces were on the ground along with CIA operatives. And there was also earlier reporting that said British uh, soldiers were on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, So we don't know, you know, again, the Discord leaks, that was as of March 2023, which was uh, a year ago at this point. So we don't know if that number has gone up, gone down, stayed the same. But this is confirmation from this European official that they are still there in some capacity. And Macron's comments also drew attention to the tens of thousands of foreign fighters who joined Ukraine's foreign legion. So the Washington Post had a report about that. And it said, I didn't realize this, that at least 50 American citizens have been killed fighting in Ukraine. 50 Americans. I I wasn't aware that it was that high. Uh, French officials have insisted that Macron was not talking about sending a large number of troops to fight in Ukraine, suggesting that he was talking about training missions. Many NATO members distanced themselves from the remarks and said that they were not planning to send troops, but Macron received support from Lithuania, which said it was discussing sending troops for training. So Lithuania's defense minister said, quote, we are talking about sending training missions, instructors. The decisions would be made on a multilateral basis, end quote. Now, remember, Russia's response to Macron's comments were that NATO sending troops to Ukraine would make war inevitable, would make a NATO-Russia war inevitable, which would mean nuclear war. It could turn into nuclear war pretty quickly. So I think if even if NATO, you know, openly sent troops to train like a few hundred that would be a huge escalation even though we know about this small special operations forces presence of course russia is aware of it as well but i think if nato took that step to say hey we're sending you know a few hundred troops to to kiev to do training you know who knows what russia would do there if they're saying it would make conflict inevitable 
um, there's the risk of them hitting those troops, and then then what happens? You know, so this is just what they're they're playing with here is this risk of of a Russia NATO war, direct war that could quickly turn nuclear. All right, so the next one here, Democrats are willing to protect Speaker Johnson for Ukraine aid. So Representative Hakeem Jeffries, he's a Democrat from New York, and he's the top Democrat in the House. He has suggested that Democrats would protect House Speaker Mike Johnson from being ousted if he brought the $95 billion foreign military aid bill to the floor for a vote. So the situation, as things are right now, that $95 billion bill, which includes $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion to support Israel's slaughter of Palestinians. Uh, I know $4.8 billion for Taiwan and other related spending. And then there's also $3 billion for the AUKUS military pact between the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. That's passed through the Senate. Uh, if it's brought to a vote in the House, it, it'll, be, it'll pass. You know, there's enough support there. But some Republicans have threatened to oust Johnson as Speaker if he holds a vote on the bill, and it would only take one Republican to file a motion to vacate the Speakership, which would bring about a vote to oust him. So that's what happened to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Matt Gates uh, filed this motion to vacate, and he was ousted because every single Democrat voted against him, and eight Republicans voted against him. The rest of the Republicans voted for him to stay. So if the Democrats decided to protect McCarthy, he would still be in. So Jeffries is saying that some Democrats may be willing to promise to vote to keep Johnson as Speaker if he moves forward with this $95 billion monstrosity. So Jeff Jeffries said, quote, it does seem to me based on informal conversations that were Speaker Johnson to do the right thing relative to meeting the significant national security needs of the American people by putting it on the floor for a vote. There will be a reasonable number of people in the House Democratic Caucus who will take the position that he should not fall as a result, end quote. It's really amazing how he phrased that, what he's calling this foreign military aid bill, the national security needs of the American people when it's you know going to go to Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and all these other places. Um, so Jeffrey said that he believes the legislation would receive north of 300 votes if it was brought to the floor. And I think he's probably right. Uh, still strong support for all this stuff. Um, Johnson and other congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House on Tuesday to discuss the foreign military aid bill and a deal to avert a government shutdown. So there's going to be a government shutdown if they don't authorize a spending bill to fund the government by March 8th. They've made some deal on on some of the spending, um, but it's not clear what they agreed to or what they didn't agree to, or I don't think they actually agreed to anything, but what... Because Chuck Schumer said that there was progress on the foreign military aid bill, but I don't really know what that progress was. Um, But if Johnson knows that the Democrats will have his back, will that be enough for him to put the bill to the floor? We know he said he favors giving more money to Ukraine. Of course, Israel, he tried to pass the standalone Israel bill for $17 billion. But I think politically, um, if he did this, you know, that he might lose some political clout on the Republican side. Um, But we'll see, uh, you know, how this thing plays out. It's still 
you know, of course, Biden isn't happy. Chuck Schumer's not happy that this thing hasn't passed yet. Um, so that's 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 always good. And I know Mitch McConnell's all about it. He actually announced that he's going to be stepping down. Um, but he was part of that meeting at the White House to push for this foreign military spending bill. All right. So the next one here, France rejects calls to give Russian central bank funds to Ukraine. So France has rejected a call from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to give $300 billion in frozen Russian central bank funds to Ukraine. And that's, you know, a step that would amount to outright theft. It would be a big escalation of the U.S. economic war against Russia. So Janet Yellen claimed, as I covered yesterday, that there was a legal case to support handing the funds to Ukraine to fund the proxy war and future reconstruction. But French finance minister Bruno Le Maire said that there was not, there was no legal case to be made. He said, or maybe he didn't say there was no legal case to be made. He said it was not sufficient. He said, quote, we don't think this legal basis is sufficient. This legal basis must be accepted not only by European countries, not only by the G7 countries, but by all the member states of the world community. And I mean by all the member states of the G20. We should not add any kind of division among the G20 countries, end quote. And that's going to be very hard because Russia is part of the G20. So the EU is moving forward with a plan to set up a fund for Ukraine using profits made by the frozen Russian money, which Le Maire pointed out. The U.S. has welcomed the plan, but they want the EU to go further. And they need Europe to be on board because European banks hold $200 billion of the Russian funds. The U.S. has about $67 billion. So, you know, the thinking here is definitely they're struggling to get this this money, uh, Congress to authorize this this spending. So this is something that they're thinking, okay, we have all this Russian money. Let's just use that. Let's just send that to Ukraine. Um, and Russia has warned that it was that it has ways to respond if the U.S. and its allies go ahead and send the Russian funds to Ukraine. So France isn't on board. It doesn't seem like Europe is on board with this plan right now. And they pretty they would have to get all the different countries to agree, and then they would need their own legislation to authorize it for you know each country that has a bank that's holding some Russian money. So I don't think this is something that'll happen quick. I wonder, I guess it's possible that Congress passes legislation so that the U.S. can send the $67 billion that it has to Ukraine. Um, we'll see if they get that desperate. All right, so the next one here, 100,000 people vote uncommitted to pressure Biden on Gaza. So this is interesting. Uh, over 100,000 people voted uncommitted in the Michigan Democratic primary to send a message to President Biden over his unconditional support for the Israeli slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza. Biden still received 640,000 votes, which is over 80%. But this is Michigan we're talking about here. Michigan is a swing state. 100,000 votes could make a big difference in the November presidential election. And uh, this was pushed by a new campaign called Listen to Michigan, which urged voters to withhold their support for Biden until he calls for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. A spokesman for the campaign said that the over 100,000 votes exceeded expectations. Um, this is Abbas Alawe. He is a spokesman for this movement. He's also a Democratic strategist. He said, quote, 
We have led a movement that is far exceeding expectations using the ballot box to urge America to stop killing our families. That's all we're asking for. Just stop killing our families, end quote. So Michigan has a sizable Arab population, and he made these comments from Dearborn, Michigan, which um, the majority of residents of Dearborn are of Middle Eastern and North African descent. So Arab and Muslim voters in Michigan, again, it's a swing state, so it gives them, uh, you know, some power here. And Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud supports the campaign and said that the purpose is to bring the morality back to this country. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, the, the House Democrat from Michigan, she's of Palestinian descent. She also took part in the campaign and said that she was proud to vote uncommitted. She said, quote, when 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us, this is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen, listen to Michigan, end quote. So a new poll, as I covered yesterday, showed that 67% of American voters think the U.S. should call for a permanent ceasefire. And that's not what Biden's doing. Biden is still providing unconditional support for the atrocities that Israel is committing in Gaza. They're pushing this hostage deal, which is a six-week ceasefire, but there's no, Hamas has not said that they're going to accept it yet, and Netanyahu has said, you know, he's going to restart everything if there's any temporary ceasefire. So we'll see. Hopefully some of this pressure works. You know, I keep thinking that something's got to give here, but they just keep going full steam ahead. All right, so the next one here, mainstream British journalists demand access to Gaza. So this is an article from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. It says that over 50 British-based journalists who report for mainstream outlets released a letter demanding that Israel allow more reporters into Gaza. Israel has killed over 120 Palestinian journalists and caused a communications blackout in the Strip that has stifled reporting on the scale of destruction in Gaza. And it does definitely seem like there's less reports and videos and pictures and stuff from that, that I'm seeing coming out of Gaza than, than there was a few months ago. Um so Israel has allowed a select, you know, select members of the corporate press to take guided tours into Gaza. I know that they let CNN in there, and that was actually CNN, which has been very pro-Israel, uh, has a very pro-Israel bias. You know, them letting the CNN reporters resulted in some bad coverage for Israel because that's who uh, covered is- Israel's destruction of the cemeteries. I mean, it's been covered elsewhere, but they put it together with what they saw on the ground and the satellite images that showed they destroyed or damaged 16 cemeteries. Um, so this letter was signed by reporters from Sky News, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, CNN, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And so I guess CNN... Um, they're not happy. They want more access. So this letter says, quote, almost five months into the war in Gaza, foreign reporters are still being denied access to the territory outside of the rare and escorted trips with the Israeli military. We urge the governments of Israel and Egypt to allow free and unfettered access to Gaza for all foreign media, end quote. All right. So the next one here, six children die of malnutrition in Gaza hospitals. This article is from Al Jazeera. So if you remember yesterday, I covered that it was reported two 
infants died of starvation in the Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza. Now that number has gone up to six. So six children have died from dehydration and malnutrition at hospitals in northern Gaza. The health ministry in the besieged Palestinian territory has said as the catastrophic humanitarian situation worsens. Two children died at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Earlier, it reported that four children died at the Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza, while seven others remain in critical condition. So I believe this is, um, there was the two yesterday, and then I believe this is on top of that. So it's it's four more from yesterday. And this is just what's being reported from the health ministry, from the hospitals. There's also people uh, who are losing children, who are sheltering in tents or, or wherever they are in the north um, that, We've seen other reports here and there of children starving to death. And I know I keep saying this, but as this thing goes on, this is just going to keep increasing and increasing until these numbers really, really add up. And these are children that are starving to death um, because of this horrific siege on Gaza that is being fully supported and enabled by our government and our tax dollars. All right, so the next one here, an EU official says that Israel created Hamas to divide the Palestinians. So this is another one from Kyle at the Libertarian Institute. And this is uh, Josep Burrell. He is the European Union's top foreign policy official. And he explained that the Israeli government helped create Hamas to divide the Palestinians. Several top Israeli officials, including Netanyahu himself, have gloated about using Hamas to divide the Palestinians and prevent international pressure on Tel Aviv to agree to a two-state solution. So Yosef Burrell explained his view on the relationship between Israel and Hamas on Monday. He said, quote, It is an unquestionable reality that Israel has bet on dividing the Palestinians, creating a force to oppose Fatah. End quote. So Burrell actually made similar remarks last month, which he was defending. So last month he said, quote, we believe that a two-state solution must be imposed from outside to bring peace. Although I insist Israel is reaffirming its refusal of the solution and to prevent it, they have gone so far as to create Hamas themselves. Hamas has been financed by the Israeli government to try to weaken the Palestinian Authority of Fatah, end quote. He clarified his position during the forum on Monday, saying, quote, I do not say that Israel financed it, financed Hamas by sending a check, but it has enabled the development of Hamas as a rival to the leading Palestinian party, end quote. So the Israeli support for Hamas has been well documented and openly discussed in Israel. Um, so he quotes Jonathan Uric, one of Netanyahu's media advisors, who said Netanyahu's key success was disconnecting Gaza from the West Bank. And again, this is to prevent a Palestinian state. He said, quote, Netanyahu basically smashed the vision of the Palestinian state in these two places. Some of the achievement is related to the Qatari money reaching Hamas each month. If Hamas crumbles, Abbas may rule Gaza. If he rules it, voices on the left will encourage a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria as well, end quote. In Judea and Samaria is the biblical name for the West Bank. All right, so the next one here, Israeli airstrikes hit Syria, causing material losses. So uh, Syria's media reported Wednesday that Israeli airstrikes hit targets outside of Damascus, 
Um, the report said that some Syrian air defenses intercepted some of the Israeli missiles, and a military source said that the strikes only caused material damage with no casualties reported. And this is, um, I haven't seen too many details on this. Uh, I believe there's reports saying that these areas, uh, you know, Iran or Hezbollah have a military presence in these areas, but I haven't seen any indication that they were, there was, again, that there was any casualties or that they damaged any sort of military uh, infrastructure or facilities or anything. Um, I just uh, wrote this up quick because I think it's important to kind of track the Israeli airstrikes in Syria. They have bombed Syria for years and years, but they've really ramped things up. And the last uh, known Israeli airstrike or the last suspected Israeli airstrike in Syria was over the weekend, and that hit an area near the Lebanon border, killing three Hezbollah members. And before that was last week, an Israeli airstrike hit a residential building in Damascus, killing at least two people. Um, and Israel continues to launch airstrikes in Lebanon as well. There was more on Wednesday and some more Hezbollah rocket fire into northern Israel. So that situation is still very tense. And one thing about the Syrian air, the Israeli airstrikes in Syria is that I know they've killed at least six members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria um, over the past few months, since October 7th. They've killed Iranians in Syria before that, but this is really just piling on to the risk of regional war uh, if Iran ever decides to, you know, directly respond against Israel. I think that's something Israel's hoping for because then the U.S. would directly intervene. All right, so the last story here, the Houthis to reassess Red Sea attacks if there is a Gaza ceasefire. So a spokesman for Yemen's Houthis, officially known as Ansar Allah, reaffirmed to Reuters that the group's attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden would only be reassessed if Israel's brutal campaign in Gaza comes to an end. So this is Mohammed Abdul Salman, Abdul Salam. He said, quote, There will be no halt to any operations that help Palestinian people except when the Israeli aggression on Gaza and the siege stops, end quote. So a ceasefire in Gaza would bring regional calm. We know this. Hezbollah has also said that it would stop launching rockets against Israel if Israel and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire. But then we have the Israelis threatening an escalation in Lebanon if there's a ceasefire in Gaza. So who knows what would happen there. But still, if you look back at the seven-day ceasefire that happened in November as a result of the first hostage deal, there was calm across the Israel-Lebanon border. And for the most part, the Houthis stopped their attacks on commercial shipping. The attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria stopped again for the most part. I believe there might have been one rocket attack. So if there's a ceasefire in Gaza, it will bring regional calm. It's very clear, and U.S. officials have acknowledged this to CNN, that they actually think the Houthis would live up to their word and stop attacking commercial shipping if there's a ceasefire. And that's the other thing there is that the U.S. would have to stop bombing Yemen as well, or, or they're going to keep targeting American and British commercial ships. And the Houthis have been clear from the start that the only way to stop their attacks on commercial shipping would be uh, the end of the Israeli slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza and for uh, humanitarian aid to enter Gaza unimpeded. So, you know, and if you know anything about the Houthis, anybody that knows anything about them knew that this bombing campaign was not going to do anything, was not going to stop them. Uh, and it seemed like they wanted it, that they wanted this to happen. 
They survived a brutal U.S.-backed Saudi-UAE war against them for years. Um, and this is, uh, again, it just seems like they're getting, they're escalating their attacks. They're able to hit more ships since the U.S. and the U.K. started bombing them. Uh, so that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. One from Ramsey Baroud. Netanyahu's last battle promises no victory, just slaughter in Rafa. One from David Stocksman, Stockman. Washington, D.C., the war capital of the world. One from Branko March Teach. Ukraine's tragedies, a good deal for some war supporters. One from Wendy Rogers. We must pass Defend the Guard Act into law. So she is a state senator in Arizona. And Defend the Guard just passed the, the Senate in Arizona. And it, I believe it passed the Senate in Arizona last year as well. So if they get it through the, the other chamber, get it through the House, um, it has a chance of becoming law. And so this is a big deal. And this is something I've been putting the link to the phone bank for Defend the Guard into the description. Because this is something, when I was at the Mississippi Convention uh, this past weekend, it's something I really tried to stress to the, the libertarians there. You know, this is something that really has some teeth to it. It would prevent the federal government from deploying the state's National Guard, whatever state passes this legislation and makes it law, the federal government would not be able to deploy their National Guard to a combat zone where Congress hasn't declared war. And Congress hasn't declared war since World War II. So it's a really good uh, cause to get behind. So I put the, the phone bank, and you could also just go to defendtheguard.us to see what the status is in your state, and if you know any state representatives or your or, ho- or house or delegates, whatever they call them, you could see about getting this introduced in your state if it hasn't been already. Um, so yeah, again, the link will be in the description. Uh, our spotlight is from Ar- Alice Sperry. How the ADL's anti-Palestinian advocacy helped shape U.S. terror laws. So please go check all of that out. Follow antiwar.com on Instagram. It's really uh, looking good over there. Follow us on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter or X. Um, Share this show. Like and subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, comment. All that stuff helps out. Um, Anyway, I'll be back tomorrow. What is it? One more show for the week. Uh, So I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.